This podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional help. If you or someone you know is facing difficulties, I advise you consult a psychologist. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Psych for Life with Dr. Amanda Ferguson. I'm your host, Dr. Amanda Ferguson. Today's episode is about guiding boys in the culture of porn and sexualization of women and girls with educator Daniel Principe. Daniel is a youth advocate and educator with Collective Shout, a campaigning movement against the objectification of women and sexualization of girls in the media. Daniel, you partner with schools and communities to challenge the porn culture and the sexualization of women and girls, and you work with young men across Australia to reimagine their masculinity. You're a former health professional seeing an urgent need to help young people to recognise the impacts of harmful messaging from social media, advertising, pop culture and the global porn industry. And you help young people to see how these fuel distorted ideas and attitudes about bodies, relationships and sex, and you encourage them to resist these messages and be courageous in aspiring to something far better for themselves. Welcome, Daniel, to this important podcast. Thank you so much, Amanda. It's great. Thanks for the great summary. I think that's about everything that we're trying <laughs> to get up to in life. So, yeah, thank you for having me. Oh, look, and just off air, I was practising pronouncing your surname and I happen to be an old scholar of ancient history and and your name, Principe, jogged my memory that these principes were the swordsmen in the armies of the early Roman Republic. They, they were men in the prime of their lives. And now you're a modern day warrior yourself. Oh, that's very generous. That's very generous. I haven't put my life on the line uh, at this stage. Not yet, but no, we are. We're, we're in our, our own ways, aren't we all? We're all trying to advocate for something. We're all trying to make the world a better place. And yeah, we just got to do that in wherever we're kind of called and whatever sphere that is. But yeah, that's very generous of you to say that. And oh. it's definitely my roots. My heritage is, yeah. is Italian and obsessed with uh, ancient Rome. Yeah. So thanks for drawing me into that. That's lovely. Yeah. And you are called, as you say, because you've got this business name, The Last of the Romans, and you just alluded to your heritage. So where does this business name come for your important quest? Yeah, it's a great question. So it was just something I had as, a, as an idea always. I just love the expression last of the Romans, which academic historians will know will refer to someone that upon their death embodied the virtues of ancient Rome. And it was seen as we've just lost the last one on earth that embodied that. It was men and women were yeah. referred to throughout human history as, as being that last of the Romans that embodied those timeless virtues. And so, yeah, I... I uh, I've grew to know it that way and I tested it with friends who were both creative and academic and they both liked it for different reasons and I went, great, let's use that. And it's obviously a homage to my to my background as well uh, and also just the work with boys, you know, like it's easy and I'm grateful that I get opportunities talking about pornography and those, you know, elephants in the room topics, but it's it's bigger than that and it's broader than that and that's, I guess, what it points to is it's not just saying, hey, let's look at the harms of pornography and hey, don't do that. Like that's such a narrow vision. It's actually saying, hey, guys, what are your gifts, talents, abilities? Like who could you be? What would it look like to show up fully as your healthiest self uh, mm -hmm. in a culture that I don't think is necessarily setting 
setting you up that way. And so for me, it's more of a having an aspirational vision, which I think all of us, especially young men, need uh, in times that I, I think are pretty challenging for them. Oh, absolutely. And that aspirational kind of vision of honour and integrity, nobility, uh, I guess those are some of the the values that I remember from the Romans' um, aspirations. Absolutely. Yeah, I resonate with all of that. So yeah, I think they're timeless and different people will dissect how many virtues there are and we can split hairs. But hey, at the end of the day, let's all be honest, irrespective of your political or spiritual or faith-based background, I think we can all agree that if people are demonstrating more love, more hope, more courage, more self-control, more wisdom, uh, more justice, the world's going to be a better place. (laughs) So let's just, I think we can all rally around that. Well, we need to. It's such an important uh, endeavour that you're on, and yes, many of us are. And at a time that you've just referred to, that really we're seeing what's called a crisis of masculinity and a, a toxic masculinity that that um, is presented a lot in the media these days. What do you make of that? Yeah, it's a great question and always get thrown at. And I, I think the first distinction I'd like to make is I don't use the expression toxic masculinity, especially with young men, because I think for them, they hear that and mm-hmm. and they hear, are you saying all men are bad? Are you saying boys are bad? Say so you and I, or if I'm in academic circles or when I'm in my feminist circles, we know what we mean when we're talking about that, mm-hmm. you know, but in, in a culture that unfortunately has culture wars, words like that seem to be weaponized in a way that's not being used to illuminate someone else's context to help them um, make sense of it. It can't often be used to kind of chop people down or to kind of attack others. Now, I know what it means in its most faithful representation, and I definitely would say uh, we need to do something about it as a phenomenon, as a reality, and as it looks in its new ways in 2023 for for the young men uh, entering into adulthood. Mm. And so there is these questions, and it's something that keeps me up at night, is that here we have a generation of teenage boys growing up with some pretty toxic influences. I'm not going to name names uh, at this early on in the podcast, plus, plus, uh, you know, pornography. And we have to ask ourselves if the modeling at home is not good, if the socialization is very much what I see working with tens of thousands of boys every year, is this rewarding of callousness, of severity, of ritual humiliation of good boys or just one another. And the punishment of decency, kindness, respect, being an upstander, like, what's the fruit of that going to be in two, five, ten years' time? Uh, when we want to see boys embodying something more fulsome and healthier. And so, yeah, I think it is the billion-dollar question for our age when it comes to young men. Is like, how do we initiate them into adulthood in a way that is healthy, in a way that grounds them to themselves, to one another, to community, to stories bigger than themselves, and to recognise uh, that um, there's just so much more for them. Yeah, that's what I come back to. Yeah. That's that's it. And that's where you so uh, much are adding value, a huge amount of value on the planet. And we'll get more into these solutions in a minute. But for, for the moment, the problem being that I guess a lot of men don't know their place these days. They're questioning, you know, the old script is, is out the window. Women finally are in some ways getting more power and um, there's more equity and equality in some ways. Um, but I think that's thrown a lot of men off balance as to what what is masculinity these days. 
And so, yeah, coming up back to that that solution is going to be so important because there's a big gap in in the knowledge for boys and men as to what it means to be a good man these days and that toxic manhood that's being promoted is is such a risk factor because we know that people gravitate to tribes and that's how a lot of boys get conscripted into um, sort of terrorising groups and r- radical groups as well because they're, they're lost for their sense of identity and when it's dangled at them as something that they can hang on to, there, mm-hmm. there's, there's the problem in that. Yeah, there's very strong evolutionary socialised forces there, however which way you diagnose it. And the other one I'd add to the mix is we long for an ubermensch, it seems, at times. We, you know, we want that strong man. And boys especially want to rally around that that yeah. that alpha male, and the language of alpha male has become so popularized over the last few years. And so there really is this pressure to be like, are you an alpha? You know, are you the top dog? There's been more of a focus on it than ever before. I think we've always done it as a society. We've always been interested in hierarchies, whether rightly or wrongly. You know, and the harms of those. Uh, have always existed but now we seem to really talk about it and there is this kind of real pressure around that and yeah I think boys don't know what it is to be healthy and that's why I come back to virtues because they're timeless they're applicable to any person anywhere anytime and when we're losing sight and social standing as to what that looks like and we've seen shifts and necessary shifts that we need in culture but the reality is boys are disenfranchised not all boys but they are and whether you think that is an absurd thing and how dare they feel that or whether you think that's very fair and reasonable it's a phenomenon that is and what do we do about that whether it's justified from their their perspectives or not Mm -hmm. it just is so what do you do with that that you have this um growing discontent amongst young boys where they feel like the world's against them and to give people the context like i'm not saying i'm not making a values judgment on that i'm just saying that if that is a phenomenon that i'm very aware of because when i go in and speak to young men opposed to say young young women uh, I have to spend about 15 minutes having a clearing conversation because there's so much cultural baggage in the room. Is this a man bashing exercise? Is he coming here to tell us that boys are bad? Is he coming in here to tell us that we're all rapists? Do you know what I mean? Like, wow. And the reality is whether they fully verbalize that, some of them are thinking it, if not most of them. Because the boys tell me afterwards, the good boys who stick around afterwards say, yeah, we thought this is what it was. Wow. So and so they tell me that that's, that's already going on in their kind of frame of reference, that the only reason me as a younger-ish man would come and speak to them would be to tell them off for being young men and how they need to be better. And I want them to be healthy. I want them to thrive and flourish, but I'm not there to chastise them. But that's, that's what's going on in this space. And so I have to clear all that as best as I can wow. before we can even lay the foundations of, hey, guys, this is what we're here to do. I'm going to critique culture. I'm going to critique socialization and necessarily use that language, but, you know, like, mm-hmm. and look at what are the ideas and the examples and the role modeling and the opportunities we're giving you as young men. Is it setting you up to succeed or is it actually actually setting you up to hum and to be perhaps adopt unhealthy ideas. Um, and then how can we champion you within some pretty difficult times? Mm. And so that's what I try and say like 10 times, challenge culture, champion you as young men, but yeah. really clear on that because yeah, there is this, this hangover baggage rightly or wrongly for them as young men who do feel disenfranchised. 
That's so interesting. Now I understand why you kind of railed a bit when I used the term toxic masculinity because they are already feeling toxic. Yeah, it's, again, I, 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 I agree with the expression, um, but I just like to clarify it just so people are aware of how it's heard, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think if we are committed to speaking, and especially someone like myself, who is the privilege of having audiences, I have to be very clear on what I am saying and what I'm not saying and how I'm being understood as well. Yeah, can I just say that they feel that they're being seen as toxic um, rather than that they're already feeling toxic, that they, yeah. you must you must get, is that what you feel you're encountering, that they already feel that they're seen as, as something is wrong with them? That's right, that's right. And, and the reality is, and, I, uh, and I'm not a, ashamed to admit this, I'm still going to invite them to reflect on how they're not necessarily... How, you know, showing up in healthy ways. So they're still going to, it's not that that's still not the exercise. And I say that for me, chief amongst all, like, hey, I have to look at how I'm not living up to the values I espouse. But how we go about doing that and reflecting and making that an invitation rather than condemnation is so important. It's like, are, are you happy with how you're showing up in the world? Are you that courageous, safe, respectful guy that your mates, your family, the women and girls feel safe around, can rely on, that you're loyal, that you're trustworthy? Is that you? Mm-hmm. And we all need to ask ourselves those sorts of questions well, from time do. to time. Yeah, and, and we have to remember that boys respond better to praise and they don't respond well to criticism. Yeah, I mean, there's a fact. I think that's true for so many of us. and. And I think it's important to recognize that. And so I bring a lot of critiques. Mm-hmm. So this isn't, if anyone's hearing me right now and thinking, oh, you know, but what about this? Believe me, as I forewarn with the boys, my talk will be the most confronting talk they hear in their whole schooling life. That's what I get told routinely. But again, it's about giving them the opportunity, not saying you are this. It's saying, hey, if you hold to these views or if we as men hold to these views, it's actually going to harm us. It's going to harm others. It doesn't serve us to have some of these unhealthy and toxic ideas. Mm. Yeah. And and amongst all of this, there's this, Sexploitation, this this phrase that came out decades ago now that it's not just of women, of course, it's of young boys as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, boys are in a really unique scenario right now. We've given young people social media with a click of a button access to sexual media and therefore everything that goes with that. So for context for listeners, you know, like it is a tragic reality that young people are going online and being exposed to explicit content, violent, racist, sexist, and all the way pornographic and, and, and horrifically violent, degrading pornography. We're not just talking about Playboy magazines, which are bad in and of itself, but we're, we're talking about some really extreme things that they're being exposed to. And for context, I work with year five, year six boys upwards. When I speak to year six boys, I'll ask them at the beginning because I'm trying to ascertain how much they're aware of. So I'll talk to them about things like catfishing and boys, have you ever had to deal with bots online that drop inappropriate things into your snap? chat tiktok gaming feeds and 50 to 60 percent of them put their hands up at that age by year nine and ten it's 95 to 100 percent and they and they know what catfishing is and for the older boys they know young boys who have been catfished the australian federal police is raising awareness on this right now because 96 percent of victims are teenage boys who think they're being spoken to by a young woman flirting with them and they're being groomed online by a predator 
And so these are, these are fraught times. And can I just say, like, this is where I start my talk with the boys. Like, when I went through high school and adolescence, like, that's hard enough for everybody navigating puberty. But I did it with a Nokia 3310 in my pocket. You know, the amount of mischief I could get up to was playing snake on the back of a school bus. Like, that's it. Yeah. Whereas these kids have internet enabled devices and everything that goes with it. And so, yeah, they're vulnerable to be exploited. They're also vulnerable to be part of exploiting others with yeah. sharing of nudes, sharing of violence, which goes around, which is cycling, girl on girl violence, boy on boy, you know, bashing one another, sharing naked images of one another. Like it is rife, but the tech has set them up for this and they're not bad or wrong. It's like, this is this is the environment, the kind of toxic sludge that we've thrown at them. And then we scratch our heads going, oh, why aren't the kids all right? It's like, well, I'm not surprised, you know. <laughs> it's like far out. I feel for them navigating all of this and, and trying to make healthy decisions when their frontal lobes are still developing and will be for another 10 to 15 years. Yeah, it's a, an incredible loss of innocence, you know, mm. from even your generation, certainly from my generation, that the... I just despair about the impact because we know that um, uh, watching violence on TV uh, leads to violence in real life. And so this is just mm -hmm. surely going to, there must be stats on this that it, yeah. uh, including bullying, increases violent act. Yeah, well, it desensitizes us too. I mean, the, the global research on that, if you've done any kind of media studies, recognizes that. I mean, mm. that's why the second wave feminists talked about this stuff as propaganda. And, you know, if, if, if everyday kind of advertising can compel our attitudes to therefore, you know, persuade our behaviours to do certain things in terms of consuming, purchasing, uh, et cetera, et cetera, what is this stuff doing on steroids to developing brains who haven't yet had an opportunity to filter out what is truth from fiction, what is actually harming them or not, what are the long-term impacts of, of this on them and, you know, every... Every government report from our Australian Institute of Family Studies report to our national plan to address violence against women and children to our watchers report, which is obviously the peak body to address violence against women, all, all recognise sexualised media as driving rates of, of violence yeah. uh, and leading to other things as well on that note, like rape myth acceptance, being a bystander because of that desensitization yes. and that's probably the most shocking thing and i hope nobody has seen the you know child on child violence videos that circulate but what's so harrowing about them is nobody's intervening no everyone's got their phones out filming oh. it's 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 all a meme there's a the term that's been coined called it's it's the memification of violence you know, it's like, it's just another trending video, you know, these kids bashing one another, these girls bashing one another, and no one's intervening, no one's doing anything about this, it's just another trend, it's just another thing to get clicks and likes, and one of uh, the chaps that I know, Dr. Valentine Jones, he did his PhD at the University of Sydney, and one of his uh, findings, this wasn't the sum total of what his PhD was on, uh, it, but one of the findings was that the combination of sexualized media and socialized media decreased rates of empathy and higher narcissistic mm -hmm. traits. And that won't surprise you or anyone in your faculty. And I think it, does, it wouldn't surprise anyone with a sense of common sense to step away from just the, the obvious realities of where these phenomenons trend. Mm 
And that's what worries me because, again, whether you call it empathy, whether you call it compassion, I'm sure we can all agree if we lose that, if we lose our sense of uh, our connectedness, interconnectedness to other people, to ourselves, to animals, to the planet, like that doesn't auger well. <laughs> no, it doesn't. And and my podcast with Mark Williams, professor of neuroscience, cognitive neuroscience, says that the big techs want that. They, mm. they want that because that's how they have power. If we're not socially connected, then mm-hmm. they've got the power and they've got the money. Um, totally. Yeah. And, and then go back to, and go back to it to soothe as well, which is another part of that feedback loop, that dopamine cycle, which I talk to young men about to help them make sense of what's happening up here. Because then you've got to keep going and finding ways to soothe. And it's the cheapest, most accessible way to soothe is social media and sexualized media yeah. to get those little dopamine hits. So I believe you do lobby the government as well. And is this something, you know, I'm hearing recently in the media that the government is now starting to pay attention to the need to regulate these big Mm. tech because they're getting away with this. It's extraordinary. So, yeah, through my work with Collective Shout and joined my colleague Melinda Tankard-Reese and others who've been advocating for 10-plus years now for age verification. And, again, irrespective of your political persuasion, I'm sure we can all agree that we don't want children being exposed to sexually explicit material with no limits. And and to remind listeners, we're, we're talking about content that most academics in the field recognise has become more sexist, more racist, more violent, more degrading. That's what we're talking about. And if that is ubiquitous, if it's popping up where the children are looking for it, because it's not a reflection on your child's goodness. It's not a reflection on how good you are as a parent. We're talking about a $100 billion industry in parallel with social media that enables this. And what are we going to do to, to protect children? And as I've said in every news interview I've had, you know, we've, we've sadly as a society put the profits of this billion-dollar industry ahead of the well-being of children. Yes. And we're now seeing the, the early research of where this is leading in terms of mental health, body image, relationship dissatisfaction, just participation in things as well. Uh, and none of that is, is trending well. And whether people are familiar with Gene Twenge's work in iGen, you know, looking at that's just – some of the, the common f- themes for young people growing up in a tech age, the iGen, yeah. And and then you pair the sexualized media with it all. And hence we've advocated uh, on, on all sides of politics and found allies all across the political spectrum. But it's just having enough cultural will to recognize that, as I've made the argument, I think this is the biggest public health crisis we're facing for young people in the Western world. Yeah, yeah, and it, look, it's such an extension from bullying, and we know bullying's still on the rise, and that those bystanders you just mentioned earlier, they're going to be mm-hmm. suffering in adulthood as much as the perpetrators and the victims. Absolutely, absolutely, and it's significant. And just to bring in a bit more of a human element, I love that we're talking research now, uh, <laughs> but I want to acknowledge to people that I'm, I don't do this work because I think I'm some angel on a cloud immune to it all. I was exposed to pornography at, a, at 11 years of age and I consumed it for 10 years oh. until I heard a message similar to this where I got to think and it kind of resonated because I, I was never okay with it. I didn't think it was great. And if you'd asked me the question, do you think this is helping you become the type of man and form the relationships you want? Like, I would have said no. I just had never been challenged to think about it critically. And so I recognize this and therefore I had a lot to unlearn and a lot of healthy things to learn and still on that journey. And I encourage others to just join me on that journey and that I'm just part of it, managing myself in a 
in a world where this has conditioned so much of how we make sense of men, women, body, sexuality, respect, consent, intimacy. And so I'm on that journey. And I was also a soft, sensitive kid raised by a single mom. And when you're a soft, sensitive kid, you get hammered. I was called all sorts of bullying slurs. I'm sure people can imagine. I won't repeat them on the podcast. And I at least had some respite because when I got on the number 60 bus home, at least it was done. Yeah. It was done for the day. Whereas these kids, it's 24-7. They're wrangling predators online who have stolen their images. They're dealing with anonymous bullying. They're dealing with doxing till 2, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. It doesn't stop. No. And so that that for me is, again, that should, for us as adults, we, that should compel a, a deep sense of empathy for these young people mm-hmm. to go, yep, we, everyone's dealt with bullying, everyone's dealt with puberty and adolescence and making sense of their identity and not everyone's always had the best role models. That's true of every generation. But this generation, I'm sure we can recognise, has some very particular challenges that no one else has faced. And so, so unprecedented in the escalation of issues that they face over anything mm-hmm. we've ever had yep. in history um, yep. of this sort. And and your particular journey, what was it about your journey that's obviously clearly made you a, a hero for this cause? There's been so many people that I have loved, either romantically or just purely as friends. Uh, who have disclosed their stories to me about childhood abuse or sexual assault. And within all those stories, the the role of pornography is never too far away. Wow. And that stacks up with the evidence uh, and it just continues to be a reality. It's not to say that pornography leads people to become sexually violent or to assault. It's just a correlation and a significant risk factor that every government report we have in this country recognises. We've talked about the reports, though. This is is the human element. Mm. And so people I've loved, people I've cared deeply about, uh, men and women, but mostly women, have been sexually assaulted, sexually abused, reduced to sex objects, reduced to objects, reduced to pieces of meat, which is very much what, unfortunately, this this toxic culture does in lots of ways. Not only the screen, the medium itself dehumanizes, but then the content and the way we socialize through it and what we're exposed to is is part of embedding in that indoctrination, as, as I call it. And so I want to do everything I can to push back against that, to try and humanize myself, humanize one another and suggest like, hey, I don't know if the way we're coming to engage, learn and receive one another and be embodied creatures with one another coexisting. Uh, I don't know if we're getting this right. And, I, and I'm and i pretty worried about where it leads. Yeah. It sounds like all your personal experience as a child and then growing up with the porn and then all these people you loved eventually just collectively helped you to reach a tipping point where you just felt that's it I have to do something and there's always a huge sense of powerlessness and I don't often use that word but it's Mm. really important to talk about perhaps given your role we'll just open up a bit more here today but yeah I, I think when you've seen this and you've witnessed it and you've seen domestic violence you've seen sexual violence towards people and you've heard those stories and 
you 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 do feel a sense of powerlessness and a sense of what do we do about this? How, how can we address it? And I certainly don't think that my diagnosis alone and our endeavours are, are going to rectify it. But I, I think what we're at least doing here at Collective Shout is rightly diagnosing a huge contributing factor of the problem, rightly diagnosing the role of pornography in escalating sexual violence, embedding violent attitudes, normalising the dehumanisation of others, and that if we want people to be treated as equal, if we want you know women and girls to be respected, then fighting against this misogynistic phenomenon is surely part of that package. Definitely. So tell us about this wonderful campaign movement called Collective Shout. Yeah, so yeah, grassroots campaigns movement. So I've uh, been volunteering for seven years. In the last two years, the team took a punt in having me as the first male to work within the organisation, which is uh, such a privilege. And so predominantly what Collective Shout has done is, is campaign against the sexualization of children and, and the objectification of women. And I've been fortunate to be entrusted to do that youth education advocacy piece, which I absolutely love, which is the other side. So yes, we need a campaign against corporations marketers, advertisers that are selling products and services by dehumanizing, objectifying. But we also need to educate and we also need to advocate politically in policy uh, to do something about this. And so that's the privileged role that I get to play. And so it's just a collective effort of like-minded people, tens of thousands of supporters across Australia, very, very diverse, the people that follow along. Uh, but we all are united in the in the fact that we we do not want to see people sexualized and objectified and and to actually push back on that because it is teaching us something it is embedding attitudes and so that's that's where we say it's about harm we, we look at demonstrative harm to those impacted by it and to their relationships and so we take that more structuralist approach in terms of looking at how do these messages harm society or 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 i guess how can we tell a healthier story about men and women but in our part is actually challenging that. And then I'm grateful that in my education, I hopefully get to put a more compelling vision of a virtuous masculinity on the table and what healthy relationships could look like. And that's part of how you equip boys, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you've got to drum that up in all of us. You've got to drum up a desire for something more. And that was it for me. I realised like I wanted more than more pornography you know, was teaching me and, and where it was limiting me in life. And that's what I say in my advice. I have this little card that I leave with people if they wanted about how to quit pornography and it's no silver bullet, but it says one of the lines is like, you're more than who the global porn industry says you are. Yes. Because right. they have a vision of your anthropology, of your humanity, of your masculinity, and I just don't share in it. So when I critique a lot of these products or advertisements that I show young boys, so for example, one of the products that we've collected at Collective Shout, Melinda's collected, is this remote control. And it was like, control your woman, control her absolutely, like this gag remote control sold, right? But what I want boys to see is these really toxic, limiting ideas that are all about putting women in their place, making them cook, give you sex acts, you know, to kind of be just slaves. Not only is that obviously teaching horrific things about women, 
but it's also saying horrific things about men. Yes. And that's what I want boys to get is when I come in here and critique all these absurd things, which again, it's not about the product, but the ideas represented in it, which I know fuel Reddit forums and gaming chat rooms. And the boys openly and honestly admit to me that jokes like that and far worse saturate all their online spaces. And I say to them, boys, I just happen to believe that there's a little bit more to being a man than whether you drink alcohol, have sex and get into fights. Like call me a naive, a naive idealist, but I happen to think that there's a little bit more to you than that. And I think we'd all love to see it and you would love it and you would feel a sense of pride in yourself if you started to embody the things that you know are good for you and good for the world. And how do you help them navigate if they're coming from a background of a home home setting where actually that toxicity is being promoted by their fathers and so forth? That you totally. may, yeah. How how do you help them deal with pitting themselves against that? It's so tough. I mean, that's the re- re- reality. Is where we all get socialized, where we all learn what what it is to be a man, and even sometimes mums shame boys for showing emotion or crying it it happens we're all part of the culture we've all been affected by these really limiting ideas and so I think it's it is trying to suggest and some of those boys you either have really good role model examples who get it or those are boys like that who are are looking for a get out like I was looking for a get out like are you are you telling me like there's another way I can show up as a man because I wasn't liking the bullying the ridicule seeing perverse guys you know the way they treated other men, the way they treated women. And I was like, there's got to be another way to show up as a man, especially as a heterosexual man. Like surely there's a healthier way that we can actually show up as men. And so for a lot of young men, it's giving them that out. And they'll usually come up to me and say, hey, I realize like I'm demonstrating some of that because they get caught up in the crowd like we all do. Yeah. But they're like, they come up and say like, I want that. Wow. Like they're like, I I want to be able to be known as a decent, respectful, courageous young man. So after your talk, how do you equip them to go and find that further? Yeah, I say to them, you need to choose your heroes wisely and you need to choose your friends wisely. Yeah. And the reality is, is like, it's why it's an interesting thing because people always ask me, who do you think are the good role models for boys? And I say, I don't know. Why I say that is because... My role models are people who are everyday people who I see who they are at home, at the dinner table, kids crying, at the checkout, and they're the people that I think we miss out on learning from. And there are good humans all scattered throughout this world. They just may not be on TikTok. They might be, (laughs) but, you know, trying to get the boys to realise that there's probably healthy role models in and around. Like there's no perfect guy. We all fall short, but there's healthy role models around them. Maybe their teachers, maybe their uncle, maybe their footy coach. Um, but to, I guess, filter everything through. And that's why when I workshop with boys, unhealthy stereotypes versus what it is to be a good man. And we do that compare and contrast uh-huh. to say, let's have more tools in the toolkit to go, well, if that guy's really controlling, degrading, if he's, you know, um, saying really perverse things about women or people of other races or this, like that we should see those red flags. So it's getting boys to see the red flags sooner mm-hmm. in themselves, in their mates, in culture, and then getting them to see the green flags of, well, what, what would that healthier guy look like? Yeah. So at the very least, giving them at least a very simple framework to then make some judgments about, yeah, who, who, 
who is actually embodying the things that make a good man? So you're opening their minds to question and then they got, can go on questioning and learning and observing. It's kind of like you're starting a, a conversation that hopefully they have amongst themselves. Do you do you see groups of what were bullying boys becoming more, more healthy? Uh, I hear reports afterwards. It'd be great to be able to track this, but, you know, you yeah. need lots of money to do this kind of evaluation follow-up and yeah. to get that kind of stats. What I get is, you know, lots of Excel spreadsheets with the boys' feedback themselves, which is lovely. Oh. And sometimes the schools will tell me that they've seen a lot less bullying a lot more respect after after we've been in the school, like demonstratively so. It'd be good to be able to get some other concrete measures. But yeah, from you know, I'm pretty pleased with that. You know, there's there's stuff that it's like, how do you how do you measure uh, some of this interpersonal stuff that may be happening on a Saturday night where a boy yeah. might make a healthier decision, you know, and the, and the infinite amount of boys who message me telling me that they're starting a journey of quitting pornography. Wow, that's that must be so heartening. Oh, it absolutely is. And again, I always say to them, be gracious with yourself. It's not about quitting overnight. It's not even about purely quitting porn. It's about becoming the man that you're proud of and recognizing that any kind of toxic habit is actually going to fall away eventually. Do you know what I mean? Like as you get healthier and you don't need to cope and sue through any destructive means, uh, that'll just fall away. So it's not so much the focus is like, don't look upon, don't look upon. It's like, I get them to do a stock take to say, like, what would it look like for you to flourish in all those areas of your life and trust the process if you were to keep improving little by little, little by little, little by in all those areas, you'll find that not only will you become a healthier human, but, like, your relationships will improve. You might find yourself physically healthy. You might find yourself mentally healthy. You might actually find you picked up new hobbies or talents or skills that you didn't even know existed. You know, more resolve that you didn't know you had, more intimacy with family and friends uh, and partners. And so it's just trusting that process. Yeah, because a lot of these problems that we see in boys and teens and girls and teens is a matter of that brain developing, as you mentioned earlier, and helping them to just grow out of it and and keep growing and growing up so that they make better decisions as they reach developmental phases where they can more likely make them and become a healthier adult. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the difficulty, isn't it? How do, how do you help them see that and to not make it harder? And that's why we try to get young men and women to be peacemakers, to identify with the challenges that they're all facing and then work out, well, what can we do to actually be allies and support our friends, the stranger, the new kid at school, the girls, and actually realize, hey, we need a solidarity, like a word we've kind of lost sight of. Like we actually need a lot of solidarity. Like there's no superheroes here, but we actually need to help one another and recognize that we all pretty much gone through pretty similar challenges that manifest differently and we all have a different subjective experience of it all but you're all young people navigating some pretty challenging times hence anxiety and depression and self-harm rates are pretty high yes and and so it's like well given we know that and that's where i try to land my intro presentation before we start workshopping some of these other ideas we've talked about is it's like can we land on having some more empathy and awareness of our challenges and then all how about we extend that to other people who maybe don't look like us or talk like us or act like us, recognizing that they themselves are also navigating this same culture. 
So how could our presence make life better for them? Not to be that person's personal saviour, but to certainly not be another stumbling block or hurdle or bully or harasser that your presence would actually be, oh, I can put my guard like down on because I don't have to worry about is this guy going to bully me or harass me? And I think that's where parents really have to be part of the process of helping the kids sort of make their way through this whole new frontier, this territory mm-hmm. that they deal with, as well as how they deal with their peers of all different walks of life. Yeah, I agree. Parents play such a huge role. It's it's definitely a, a huge part of our work as we love to engage the students, do a staff PD and then speak to the parents' community in the evening because we need that collective buy-in, that solidarity. It approximates, you know, best practice in terms of engaging three pillars of a community uh, in terms of um, who shapes peer attitude. So there's the peer on peer, you know, the educators and then the parents. And then the fourth could be, you know, like a footy club or a music group or maybe a faith community being that fourth peer that may, uh, sorry, fourth um, pillar that may shape peer on peer attitudes. Do you find that maybe parents also feel that they're on the journey, the same kind of journey as you say of yourself, that this is an opportunity for them as well to, yeah, become better men, become better women? But that's the reality, and, and thank you so much for mentioning it. And, and sometimes that is the other elephant in the room, right? So sometimes when I'm on radio and you have parents dial in and say, how do I talk to my kids about porn? And great question, like happy to give some really practical tips about asking some good questions and looking for those teachable moments. And, you know, we can we can talk about the techniques and here's some great resources I recommend. But the biggest thing is more of a philosophical, psychological reflection piece, which is yes. what's your own story? And not whether you, I'm not asking you, have you or haven't you consumed pornography, but it's more like, how have you come to learn about these really important topics? It's the it's same question. And if you're not grounded in it, if you have never reconciled or resolved or considered or started to make peace with that, we all have probably had bizarre or unhealthy or less than satisfactory experiences of sexuality or learning about it whether from our parents or school or a first sexual experience or exposure to, you know, pornography, if we've never really reconciled that and kind of, yeah, just, I guess, integrated it into the fact that this has actually shaped us, then I don't know if we're going to be able to have these conversations faithfully in the sense of not doing it in reaction. Yes. And and doing it from more of a place of, yeah, I'm, I'm in this too. Yeah, it used to be, of course, before this high tech that kids would find their parents' porn magazines and so they'd learn that way and there's a lot of shame in that from the parent often because they wouldn't necessarily leave them lying around. They'd be hiding them. So the shame that's a big part of this addiction is another thing. Yeah, to decent. And and again... no one's bad or wrong because you've been exposed or consuming pornography. You've been preyed on by a billion-dollar industry that knows your limbic system better than you do and knows exactly how to stimulate it in a way that you would keep coming back in a compulsive way. Mm. You know, it's an unfair fight. It's disproportionate. And whether that's because you've stumbled upon it or there's been a pop-up online or someone else has shown you, like, it is unfair. But let's resolve that. Let's acknowledge that. Like, let's be open and honest about that, that we ourselves have. And one of the most beautiful things of my work is seeing adults acknowledge that. And it's been a, like, it's been a, 
byproduct of the work that I never foresaw where I've had like adult friends older than me saying to me, Dan, since following your work, like I've gone and talked with my husband or my wife about how we learned about sex and Pillon's role in that and just actually like talked eye to eye as in, you know, intimately about this stuff. Wow. And and they've said that it's actually improved their sex life. And believe me, I'm no sex therapist, sex coach or anything like that, but just by virtue of creating a space for conversations to normalize it through my own story, that's one of the things that I just find is such a profound privilege is to realize it's actually helping other people make sense of their stories. And then I think if they can do that within the context of their relationships or their marriages to then extend that from a place of groundedness to their own children. Brilliant. And do you think boys would talk to other health practitioners like GPs and do you think that's a place boys would reach out. I think it's the hardest. It's harder. Some of the research that you may be aware of is that young people still say that they want to talk to mum and dad. There was research that came out last year, I'm pretty sure, that said that, yeah, like in a crisis, like they, like mum and dad are still number one on that list. Oh, good. So there is still that and parents need to take heart in that. But I think it is, it's just normalising having those conversations that they're not in trouble, they're not wrong if they're exposed to these things or anything else. A lot of young people tell me, and I I don't know if they've said this to you, but similar is they say, I don't want to burden mum and dad with what's going on. Mum and dad are stressed. I don't want to burden them. So it's not even just a shame thing of like, oh, I don't want to be judged or how's mum and dad going to react. There's another piece to the puzzle, which is like they feel like they might be burdening their parents when they've got enough on their plates. And so there is that element. Obviously, young people uh, speak speak to one another and they go online looking for resources and that's what I'm seeing and, and they're looking for... Uh, I guess, anonymous ways to kind of get in touch with people and do that. I think as much as you try to uh, destigmatize something or be open and honest about it and be transparent and authentic, like you can't control the people and everyone's going to go on their own journey of like being transparent and being honest about it. But yeah, I think uh, young people most likely want to talk to people that they do know in that regard, like the peer-on-peer thing. That's been my experience, that they do go and debrief with one another um, about what I've said. So that's always really, really interesting. I had this experience. It was probably one of the highlights of my career earlier this year. I was at a school in Sydney, and I'd gone into the bathrooms after a talk, and unbeknownst to me, a group of boys walked in after my talk, and I was in the cubicle, and they had no idea that I was in there. And so they started talking about me and I was in this awkward moment where I was like, do I out myself? Do I let them know? How long can I loiter in the cubicle for? This is a bit strange, but it was incredible. Like this for me confirmed again, what I started with is they said, oh, we thought this was going to be another sex talk from some old guy and it was going to be boring and this and that. And they said some nice things about me, which I won't become self-indulgent and repeat it here (laughs) on your podcast. And then I popped out of the cubicle at that moment. I said, thanks, lads. That really means a lot. And they all just hit the floor in embarrassment and (laughs) laughter. But it goes to show, like, even straight away, they wanted to debrief as a group of mates about how it was. Wonderful. You mentioned off air about a GP's findings. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's right. A recent story. So my dad's texting me the other day. And he really wanted to chat. And I was like, okay, dad, like, hang on. I'm just on the train. I'll I'll call you as soon as I get off. And I said, what's going on? He's like, oh, I bumped into our family doctor. And I was like, really? Like, I haven't seen Dr. So-and-so in, you know, 15 years. Like, 
And he's like, yeah, I was giving him an update as to, you know, what you and your sister are up to. I was like, oh, that's awesome. Like, and he goes, yeah. And he just like, he should have seen his reaction when I told him what you do. And I was like, gosh, Deborah, what did you tell him that I did? Like, and, and the reaction I go on to learn as retold from my dad is that he himself, my, my family's GP is seeing more late teen, early 20 year old like adolescent man presenting with erectile dysfunction and other related issues because of porn consumption, normal sex, skin on skin, embodied sexuality just doesn't do it for them. Dreadful. Oh, it's so sad, Daniel. So what can we do as a public in society to help boys in particular with porn? Yeah, it's it's such an extraordinary phenomenon. So for context, 20% of boys are consuming every day, 40 to 60% every week, and you know, 90 to 95% will be exposed by the time they're 18. That's the landscape that they're navigating. And it is leading to all sorts of issues, including porn-induced erectile dysfunction. When I was mentioning that six or seven years ago, people thought I was just saying that to scare people and fear-monger and quit porn. But now I speak to counsellors, I speak to psychs, GPs. One of my friends back home in Perth is a pelvic floor specialist, you know, and she told me, Dan, I'm seeing more boys presenting to my clinic. She goes, I know what you're going to tell me. I need to screen, don't I? And I said, yeah, as part of the medical history. And so this is it. But it's like, I say all this to say, Finally, we can actually say with some data, with lots of stories, this is affecting people personally, relationally, cross-culturally, you know, to, to society. It's affecting, like I get asked by young women about dating and navigating dating and staying safe, both emotionally and sexually. And how do I know if a guy's being straight with me? So like, it's just completely you know, affecting so many different facets of society. And so we come up with a game plan. It's not part of my core work. I don't charge for it. But telling my female friends how to like navigate that conversation in a date. And so I think I say all that to say, look, people clearly recognize the harms in lots of different ways, in lots of different ways. And so, okay, we, we recognize that. That's obvious. It's documented. The stories are for days. There's no one without a story right? In all different pockets I hear. Everybody's got a story. Every day I hear a story. And so, okay, that's done. But then now is the job of educating and advocating. Because how do you make a healthy, informed decision if you've never been given the information? So when I speak to boys about dopamine loads, it's like, well, you guys have had some education on the harms of cigarettes. And you've certainly had our education on, say, things that do spike dopamine, like illicit drugs, like cocaine and ecstasy and and crystal meth, and you've had education on on alcohol and how that can harm you. And so you can at least make somewhat of an informed decision. But that doesn't exist with pornography, and you certainly don't get any pop-up on a pornography website that says, you know, this can lead to increased loneliness, depression, can make you not enjoy your usual recreational activities, could lead to erectile dysfunction. So how do you make an informed decision if you've grown up in a society where this is readily available, no one's ever spoken about it, you get exposed to it, and it either makes you feel curious or scared or uncomfortable or enticed or aroused, and how do you make sense of that? Does that mean it's wrong? Does it mean it's good? Is it healthy? Is it harmful? Like, how do I make sense of it? And so for me, it's like finally we're seeing a shift in culture where we're now having these conversations. Fantastic. And if someone has a porn addiction or they're, they're concerned that they're developing one, where would they go? That is the tricky situation, isn't it? So I'm big on advocating for taking this seriously, right? You know, like some people, it's like they kind of just want to hope it goes away. 
But like this affects so much of our own sense of well-being, our own sense of interconnectedness and relationships. Like take it seriously, not because you're bad, but actually because you have value and like we want to see you healthy. Like that's why I advocate so strongly, not because I think people are terrible, but it's like, hey, I want to see you healthy and thriving. Like, and I see the hunched shoulders and the shame that people are carrying in my talks and I want to see them uh, bounding in life and, and feeling alive and proud of who they are. Yeah. And so I want to see them have every opportunity. And so what's difficult is those is under 18s because you may need to speak to a, you know, an adult, but obviously you can go to GP, get a mental health plan. You could see a therapist or a counselor, make sure they're porn critical, that they understand the harms. Um, I think the sex addiction fellowships, again, for adults, which is really, really important. And again, that doesn't, that's just becoming more normalized. And I speak to people in prisons and I speak to others who run those fellowship groups. And they're saying they're seeing more and more people attending sex addiction fellowships and say AA or even Narcotics Anonymous these days. Wow. Such is the way that our society inflames that sexual impulse. I mean, C.S. Lewis wrote about it 70 years ago because he talked about a man with an inflamed sex instinct has no sales resistance. And so he talked about this, like, for, you know, that was well before the internet age. And here we are living in that reality. So no wonder counselors and therapists and GPs and sex addiction fellowships are seeing more and more people presenting with this because we live in a culture that's seek to, you know, stir up our sex drive 24 seven and shock horror. That's actually not how we should function in life. That's and I have to say it because laughing, that's not because I'm laughing at anyone. It's just like, you know, if I, if I don't laugh, I'll cry. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. Um, and so, yeah, I think that all to say, like, let's take it seriously. Let's get healthy, you know, um, depending on how long you've consumed for and how compulsive it is. Like, can you give it a miss for a day, a week, a month, a year? You know, that'll show, you know, how much of a hold this has on someone's actual imagination, but also the neurophysiology of their mind, how much they actually need it to soothe, to cope. And the extraordinary thing is, is like recognizing that. I have a group of young men in Melbourne a few months ago who lined up and I just asked them out of curiosity because they were all telling me that they were consuming pornography. And I said, why? And they said, I'm bored, I'm bored, mm -hmm. I'm bored. I'm bored. Just astounding that here we are in an age with so much choice, so much variety, so many diverse activities they could be up to, yes. and yet they're bored. And so for me, it's like that's part of this stock take. So, yeah, let's take it seriously. Let's make sure professional help is available. There are organizations online that do help with this. Gabe Deem, who was one of the young men who spoke in Time Magazine and Rolling Stone, he, he launched an organization called RebootNation.org. There's more and more apps on phones that help people to take stock of this and, and look at their mindfulness, look at their routines, look at this stuff. So people are actually coming up with the solution. It's simple but it's not easy. Absolutely. And as we're wrapping up, I ask all my guests, what makes you psyched for life? Oh, conversations like this and just meeting so many people of goodwill along the journey. Yes, this problem is huge. It's wicked in the sense of how complex it is and how dark it is. Uh, when you're dealing with survivors every single day and doing your utmost for them and trying to support them and advocate for them and give them a voice and a microphone. But what keeps me going is them being empowered and meeting other people of goodwill that want to do something about this. Like it just stirs me up and the stories from young people just keep me going that they're kind of having their light bulb moments and they're hearing a message that 
I wish I'd heard at their age. And not just that I'm saying it, but hopefully others as well, just saying to them, like, you have so many gifts and talents to offer this world. And seeing them lay hold of that, for me, is just like, well, we owe that to the younger generation. And that's that's what gets me pretty amped. <laughs> well, we're so grateful for your work, Daniel. It's so incredibly important. And if people want to find you, they can go to www dot last of the romans dot org and to your podcast reimagining masculinity and for speaking events media interviews head to collective shout.org yeah collective shout.org wonderful yeah thank you for this incredibly important episode daniel principe thank you so much for having me if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please rate, review and subscribe on Apple, Spotify or wherever you're listening right now. Plus, don't forget you can access all of the resources mentioned in today's podcast via the show notes. Is there a pressing issue or topic you'd like me to discuss? Head to my Instagram at dramandaferguson and send me a DM. I love hearing from my listeners. If anything discussed in this podcast has caused you concern or distress, contact your general practitioner or health provider. To locate a psychologist in your area, call the Australian Psychological Society and locate Find a Psychologist Service on 1800 333 497 or visit www.findapsychologist.org.au. If you or someone you know is in crisis, Lifeline is available 24-7 on 13 11 14 and Kids Helpline again 24-7 on 1800 1800 and both are free of charge. To find out more about me, please visit my website dramandaferguson.com.au. You can find the link in my show notes. The opinions expressed by guests in these podcasts aren't necessarily shared by me.